Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. Uh, some faces I've been seeing for a while, some faces I haven't seen in a long time. All of you at home know that we miss you and we love you, and we're still here for you, and, uh, and we still need you. So wherever you are, this is a part of us moving together as a church, and we're so grateful that you're here, and we pray that you'll join us as we try to pick up the momentum again in connection with one another and service to one another. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 7, and uh, the Renards are going to come up and read to us from Matthew 7, starting in verse 3. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Thank you, guys. So in April... Of 1963, civil rights leaders in Birmingham, Alabama, had continued to stage a series of peaceful, nonviolent marches. And the organizers were absolutely committed to make sure that their marches were peaceful and nonviolent. But even when you make a commitment, to be peaceful and nonviolent, that doesn't mean that other people with whom you're engaged in difference and conflict are automatically making the same commitment. And so you can control what you can control. And it was on April 12, 1963, that Martin Luther King Jr. came in to join in one of those marches, and he was taken to prison in Birmingham, Alabama. And while he was in prison, eight prominent white pastors wrote an open letter to MLK and others in the organization that he was a part of, and they criticized King and his group and their efforts and described what they were doing as, quote, unwise and untimely, which led to one of the most well-known pieces that King ever wrote, the letter from the Birmingham jail. And in it, he shares that this group in Birmingham had actually tried other means to progress civil rights in the area long before it came to that, including several in his group had met with civic leaders, and they had made very simple requests to the merchants to take down signs that they called humiliating racial signs from stores. And these are just a few of the signs. You can Google and you can see there are some I wasn't going to put on the screen this morning. But they're out there, they're easy to find, and this seemed like a pretty simple, safe request. Hey, you know those really humiliating, dehumanizing signs that are all over town, 
Maybe you could take those down. And maybe some of the things that they represent, some of the restrictions that they represent, we could start to roll those back. And in King's words, civic leaders said, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to make some changes. But in this letter from the Birmingham jail, the reason he said they started to peacefully march is promises were made and promises were broken. And nothing changed. They were told that signs would be taken down and weeks went by and months went by and months went by and months went by. And no changes occurred. Humiliating inequality remained. So they started to prepare their peaceful protest. And that's where uh, King started to describe there were four steps that anyone who was connected to his organization committed to in their peaceful, nonviolent actions. Number one was collection of facts to determine whether injustices exist. Seems pretty easy in this case. Number two, negotiation. Try to work it out peacefully before anything happens. Number three, I'm going to come back to number three. Number four was direct action. But even when they decided to take direct action, they were absolutely committed that their direct, direct action was peaceful, was not. So they trained volunteers and asked them questions like, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? And are you able and willing to go to jail? Because they knew that that was a possibility. But it's the third step that I want us to take the majority of our time talking about this morning. Step three is what King called the step of self-purification. And I find it fascinating that this group had that as one of steps because if you were to ask me, someone looking back on that time, someone who's read a lot of the literature and seen a lot of the photos and watched a lot of the videos. I've visited, if you've not visited, the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. It is extraordinary. It's gut-wrenching. If you've not been to the museum here in town for Central High, it is extraordinary and it's gut-wrenching. And when I look back on that time, I would say absolutely there was some self-purification that needed to happen. I just probably would have thought it wasn't the group who was speaking up about the inequality and doing so in peaceful and in nonviolent ways. If you ask me who needs to do the self-purification, it's those who brought violence and injustice and inequality or perpetuated it at least. But King and others in their movement, they knew something. And that's this. Even in the noblest of causes, or even in the times when we feel like we are the purest in our peacemaking efforts, every one of us would benefit from taking the time 
to step back and examine our own hearts. To take, back, to take our time and step back and examine our own motivations, our own actions. Even the best of us in the best of situations need time for reflection and any necessary correction that follows. Which is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. So Matthew 7 starts with that well-known warning against judgment. Don't judge, Jesus says, or you're going to be judged. Oh, and in the same way, in the same measure, the same amount you judge, when you dish it out, it's coming back to you. Which prompts the readings that the Renards read from Matthew 7, 3. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying that what you are dealing with is always, in every situation, bigger and badder than what the other person is dealing with. Sometimes it is. Sometimes, if we were honest, it absolutely is. And sometimes it's not. But here's what we know it always is. What's protruding from our eye is always closer. And that's what's within our control. Because as much as we would like to control the other person or the other party or the other group, especially when we find ourselves in conflict, we cannot control them. Which leads Jesus to urge us to deal with our own ocular obstructions. I had fun writing that sentence, by the way. Feel free to write that down. Deal with our own ocular obstructions. Deal with what's right there, with what's within your control, because we know that this applies not just to sin in our lives, but when we're struggling in relationship with another person. When we're in the midst of conflict with a group of people, it is always easier to find fault in someone else's thinking or actions and conclude that the real problem is that they're being pig-headed and stubborn and they're just not opening their eyes. And if they would just open their ears. It's always easier to identify all the ways that your spouse is contributing to the problem. And let's be honest, causing the problem. We all know it's not us, it's them. 
If they would only change the way they act, if they would change the way they do, if, if they would just do one little thing that I've asked them to do over and over, then this wouldn't be an issue. It's always easier to lay it at the feet of the person at work or the person at church. If they really loved Scripture like I love Scripture, then surely they would come to the same conclusion and this wouldn't be an issue. And sometimes there's some truth in that. Sometimes they're contributing. Sometimes they're causing. But the question is, what about you? It always takes two to tango. We all bring ourselves into the stories. Do, do you remember the parable of the and the tax collector from Luke 18. Jesus is talking to people who are really confident of their own strengths and also really confident of their assessment of the struggles of others. It is the speck and the log dilemma. The Pharisee has done some things that he is proud of, and I would say rightfully so. There's some good things that the Pharisee has done. It's not a problem that he recognizes that, that he's proud of that to an extent. But there's no humility because there is no self-awareness or self-reflection. And all he wants to do is point out the speck in other people's eyes, especially the tax collector. And it is that arrogance and that self-righteousness that allows him to look past the log of, of arrogance in his own life. And the tax collector, you remember, stays at a distance from the temple, and he is full of self-awareness and self-reflection and sincerity, and his prayer is honest and confessional, and he's humble enough to see and admit the places where he needs to go. And do you remember Jesus' assessment of those two in that situation by the end? Jesus says, the one who was humble enough to be self-reflective and honest with himself and God is the one who was made right, who was made whole, who went away righteous in that scenario. And that's the way it is when we find ourselves in conflict with others because sometimes when we're in conflict in our hurt or in our anger or frustration, our sense of rightness and righteousness, we can aim all of our energy and attention on what they're doing to cause it and contribute it and continue it and you might be onto something. They may have caused it. I'm sure they're contributing it. They might be continuing it. But the question keeps coming back, what about you? Maybe, just maybe, you contribute as well. Maybe you both have some confessions to make. Maybe your motivations aren't 
100% pure. Maybe your mindset isn't 100% fault-free. Maybe your MO, your standard way of functioning in the midst of conflict leaves something to be desired. Maybe there's ways that you would benefit from reflection and sometimes correction. So James challenges the church that he writes to in James chapter 4, and apparently there's some conflict going on in that church. So this is what James writes in 4.1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Yeah, sometimes. You desire but do not have, so you kill or attack. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Yes, been there. You do not have because you do not ask God. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Okay, James is getting a little personal here. And I don't really appreciate it. Now, is that the case with every conflict that we find ourselves a part of? No. But is, is it a part of some of it? Some of the things that he ta- he's talked about? Yeah, absolutely. And at all times, we would benefit from self-reflection and self-purification. Even in the conflicts, and I would say especially those where we feel the most noble in our approach and the most right in our position. It doesn't mean that our motivations or our mindset or our MO couldn't use some adjustment. And let's also be honest for a moment. When we are in conflict, don't we often think that we are more right and more righteous in that issue, in the conclusions we've made, in the way that we're going about it? Don't we in our heads sometimes sound like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Oh, Lord, I thank You that I am not like the people that disagree with me on this issue. My spouse, who could not be more wrong on this issue. My parents, my kids, my siblings, my co-workers. So this morning, I want to walk you through a simple time of reflection. And this isn't the last time you'll do this, and hopefully it's not the first time, but I I hope that all of us can explore a little more who are we in our times of conflict. How do we function? How do we act? How do we think? How do we approach things? And I want to start by showing you something that's called the dual concern model. And this is something that I was first exposed to in a grad class 24. 25 years ago, the whole semester, the grad class was called Managing Conflict in the Church. 
It's as if they knew sometimes it would pop up. And I went through a, a mediation class, a couple of different mediation classes a couple of years ago, and that came back up. And this is the dual concern model. And I'm not going to do a deep dive in this, but this is just to show one way of kind of understanding conflict in different ways that we deal with it. So you'll notice the horizontal line on this maps out uh, how concerned you are about the issue and how uh, you might think that is right or just or fair or the appropriate outcome. And the vertical line maps out concern for the other person or the relationship. And so you'll see in the bottom when you talk about avoiding, those who deal with conflict a lot will say when you avoid, you're showing both a low concern for the issue and a low concern for the relationship. And there's question marks there because you don't know what's going to happen when you constantly avoid, when you kick the can down the road. But you're saying this issue isn't important enough for me to engage it, and really the relationship isn't important enough for me to engage it. At least those who study and deal with conflict and mediation would describe it that way. When you look at competing, they'll describe that as a win-lose situation. That's when you care more about the issue more about you winning, even if it means the other person loses, more about what you think is right or fair or just, or it may be competition. You know, kind of the low end of that is, is games and sport. Even in sport, when you play against a friend, what happens? I'm going for the win. I'm not upholding the relationship when I go against the other person. On the other end, accommodating is when you care a lot more, in this instance, about the relationship, the other person, than you care about. So the issue for you shows up kind of low. It's the relationship that you're going to lean into. And I'm, I'm going to accommodate, even if that means I lose, so the other person wins. Or I lose, so the relationship wins. And compromising just goes kind of right in the middle. You sort of care about the issue, you sort of care about the relationship, and those who, who spend time with reconciliation and conflict resolution, they would say that one's, if anything, they would categorize it as usually a lose-lose. No one really gets what they want in compromise. There's a little bit of winning and a little bit of losing, and you kind of hold up to the, the issue and kind of the relationship. Collaborating is when you're going for the win-win and you really care about the issue, but you also really care about the relationship. And so you're trying to find some new path forward where both people feel like they're winning or both groups feel like they're winning about that particular issue. And what those who study and deal with this would say is every one of those has a place at certain times in certain circumstances I'm going to avoid an issue when someone cuts me off on the, on the road, and I don't like it, but I don't know that person. I'm not going to see that person again. I don't have it in me to compete, to slam on the accelerator, to drive around, to make sure they know that mine is a just and righteous cause, and you cut me off. I don't care about the person. I didn't like it, but I don't care enough about the issue. I'm going to move on. I'm going to avoid 
But that doesn't always work when you're in an ongoing relationship with someone. Accommodating, which is also one of my defaults, can be good at times. I'm going to value the relationship, the other person, over the issue. But sometimes that means important issues fall to the wayside if you always accommodate. Or in some relationships, it means your resentment starts to climb, right? Oh, I'm accommodating, I'm accommodating. And then you talk with them, you're like, yeah, that's been building up. That's really bothered me because I've become a doormat in the relationship. Competing on the other end, always looking to win, you know what that can do in a close relationship. If you've got to win at all costs, regardless of what it does to the other person. So my invitation is not to go super deep into that, but it is to invite you to reflect for just a moment. What kind of patterns do you notice in the ways that you handle conflict? And how is it different in different situations? Are you someone that competes at the office and accommodates at home? And when is that a strength? And when can that cause problems over time? Are you someone that competes in your relationship at home, but you get along great with everyone else in the office or in other places? What challenges, what problems can that present? What strengths do you have when it comes to conflict? And what are your growth areas? Or maybe a scarier but a more daring question to ask is this. If you were to ask people close to you in your life, what would they identify as your strengths and your growth areas when it comes to conflict? Because what you see as your strengths and what you see as your growth areas may or may not be what they see. And beyond just the patterns, what problems do you struggle with when it comes to conflict? So I'm just going to list off a few. And I want you to think about if any of these ring true for you. When conflict surfaces, do you turtle? Do you go into your shell? You're not going to talk about it. You're not going to engage it. You're not going to open up. You hide out for a long time. Are you the opposite of that? Are you like a cornered animal? You go on the defensive and you go on the attack and you're, you're snarling and the claws are out and the teeth are out and they're coming after you, so you're coming after them. Do emotions take over? for you? Are you Bruce Banner turning into the Hulk? You're not going to like me when I become angry and everyone in the household knows it. Uh-uh, he's turning green. Dad's turning green. Everyone give him space. Or is it the other end of the emotions? Do the tears come out and it shuts down productive conversation? Do you become an Old Testament eye for an eye kind of guy or gal? Whatever they do to me, I'm coming back at them and with ferocity. Do you become a history buff? So the issue that you were dealing with is no longer the issue because now you're going to the closet of complaints and you're dragging out a decade worth of issues. All right, you want to talk about this? Well, I've been storing up some other things that we can talk about. I've got pictures, I've got home videos, I've got old letters that we can look through. We can go through all of this. I am ready. I am cocked and loaded. Let's go. 
Let's go at it. Are you Dr. Conflict? You're diagnosing all of the problems for everyone else and offering unsolicited prescriptions for them. This is your problem. This is how you solve it. When you get it together, come back to me. We'll work together. Or in your mind, do you become magnanimous? And you see yourself as more benevolent than you actually are. And you see others as the source of evil and problem. Do you dichotomize? Do you divide everything into neat, harsh categories? It's my way or your way. It's us, it's them. It's right, it's wrong. It's good, it's evil. It's all or nothing. And there's nowhere in between? Do you overgeneralize? Do you take specific behaviors and blow them up? You always, here's how you know you're overgeneralizing, when you start using always and never and all of them and nobody, do you start putting things in those massive categories? Do you become a mind reader? You know exactly what they're thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. In fact, you know it better than they know it. At least that's what you think. Or do you expect someone else to be a mind reader? If my spouse really loved me, if they really cared, then they would. If my church if my life group really cared about me, then I wouldn't have had to ask. I wouldn't have had to bring it up. They should have instinctively known that this is what I wanted and this is what I need and this is the ways that they've fallen short. Do you project? Do you take your issues, your insecurities, and you put them on everyone else? And then that's the filter, the lens through which you see them. I could keep going. I've probably gone long enough. Do any of those ring true for you? Or maybe it's something different. This is an invitation, a, a scary invitation, I recognize, for self-reflection. And when needed, self-correction. Who are you in the midst of conflict? How do you function? How do, you, how do you think? How do you act? What are your strengths? Are there some growth areas? Some places where you need confession? This can actually be a healthy exercise for couples as well. Though let me caution you, not in the midst of a heated conflict. That's probably not the best time to sort through that. A time when things are good and calm. You plan it out. It may be something that you want someone to walk with you in that, a professional. You may find that's a difficult conversation on your own, and you bring someone else in. But here's my challenge for all of us this week. Take a little time to reflect. Not on all the problems everyone else has out there, and if they would just get their act together, things would be better. But what about you? How can you grow? How can you evolve? 
How can you function better in the midst of conflict with others? And to close, I want to let the words of David from Psalm 139 be a guide for us. So let's pray and then we'll sing together. Search us, God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray this through Jesus' name. Amen.